Welcome to our weekly Catechism class. This lesson is a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help us to learn Christian doctrine with a warm and a practical application. Every lesson has an accompanying study guide. The web link to find that guide is in the episode notes. Now, let's start the class and learn the lessons. So welcome to our Catechism class. In this class, we're going to be looking at Heidelberg Catechism, uh, Lord's Day 5, question 15. Catechist asks in question 15, what kind of mediator and redeemer then must we seek? The answer is one who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. Now that seems like an awful lot. Let's summarise it in the words of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, where Paul writes, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Can you explain to me the doctrine of the two natures of Christ? Okay, it's difficult, so I'll give you a head start. I'll state the doctrine, and then you can tell me, or you can tell each other, just how it happened, how it came about, and how all that fitted together. Is that a deal? Well, here's my bit. We must be able, ready, and willing to confess the true humanity and the true divinity of Christ, that he is two distinct natures in one person forever and ever. That's vital, because his divine offices of prophet, priest and king are all dependent upon the fact of his person. Furthermore, his saving work demands that we confess this doctrine. For if Jesus is not fully human, then how could he have perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf? How could he have done what we so miserably fail to do? How could he have represented us on the cross? And if he is not fully divine, how could he have borne the weight and awfulness of the sins of mankind? If he is not fully human and fully divine, how then could he have taken upon himself the role of the mediator, the days man so longed for by Job? So there you are. I have stated it. Now, can you help me to understand it? Well, if your answer is no, I can't simply work that one out. Then you're not only honest, but you're in very good company indeed. The Apostle Paul says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I'm Bob McAvoy, and this is the Samper River Meta Podcast. So today we're going to talk about the mystery of godliness. 
Jesus is God. Jesus is a man and he is one person. The mystery of godliness. That mystery of godliness is Christ himself. Now we can't by our own minds reason out the doctrine of the Trinity. The eternal three in one and one in three. One God in three distinct persons. His incarnation. How God brought about his sinless birth by the Virgin Mary. How he was both fully man and fully God, two distinct natures in one indivisible person forever. Christ is the mystery of godliness. Let's look at our text for a moment or two. We serve a living God. Paul has talked to here about the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And the church is the repository, the defender of truth. I would be so bold as to assert that it is the only repository of absolute truth. And that the truth it defends is not its traditions or its councils or even its creeds. It is the absolute truth of the written word of God, the Bible. Now God has revealed to us sufficient truth for our salvation and for our sanctification. But there's only so much that our tiny human minds can work out, only so much we can comprehend. There must be a vast amount of information about this world, this universe, about God and his plans and purposes that we will understand only when we arrive in heaven. Right now, it is a mystery. A man called William Phelps taught English literature at a university in America for 41 years. He retired in 1933. Once he was marking an examination paper shortly before Christmas one year, and Phelps came across a little note written on the paper. God only knows the answer to this question. Merry Christmas. Phelps returned the paper with the note, God gets an A, but you get an F. Happy New Year. The word mystery here in Greek, mysterion, simply means God's hidden purpose or will. There is enough truth revealed to us to satisfy our quest for truth. There is enough truth revealed to us in God's word to point us to the way of salvation. Great is the mystery of godliness. So in the verse we see that it's not controversial to admit that sometimes there are things that are beyond us. The word here for without controversy is in fact our old friend the word homo legumenus. We first encountered that word in 1 John. It means to say the same thing as, literally to say the same words. In 1 John it was translated as confess. Here it's used to indicate that we all have the same difficulty when it comes to the person of Christ. We can tell you what it is, but we can't hope to work it out. And nobody is any different. There's no controversy about this. There's no argument. There's no one with special insight or knowledge. We all have the same problem. It is, quite literally, beyond us. Great is the mystery course it is. It's great in its implications, it's great in its depth. It is unfathomable. 
But Paul has a secondary agenda here. This statement is not just doctrinal. This statement is apologetic. This statement is actually a defence of the faith. This statement is a poke in the eye for the local pagans in Ephesus. So let me explain. Paul's writing to Timothy. And Timothy at that time was the local pastor in the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus is dominated by a huge pagan temple, the temple of Diana or Artemis. If you look at Acts 19, you will see that the preaching of the gospel there had enraged these pagans, and a riot had ensued, stirred up as usual by some of the Jews. Isn't it strange how all religions can find reasons to hate Christianity? This time the leader of the riot was a man called Alexander, a Jew. But when the mob realised who he was, they shouted him down. Acts 19 and verse 34, when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours, cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now to them, Paul gives the reply, Great is the mystery of godliness. The Ephesians had a statue. A statue of Artemis or Diana. A statue whose religion is a debased immorality. But Christ is God incarnate in the flesh, crucified, risen, ascended, glorified, and soon returning Saviour of mankind. And this is a godly mystery. This is a mystery that will lead you into godliness. It's designed by God to induce godliness in us. And that makes it different from the mystery religions of the Gentiles. Paul talks about those in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 7, where he talks about the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It's a godly mystery. And it's a Christ-centered mystery. In fact, Paul makes it clear here in the form of a hymn or a statement of faith that every area of Christ's life is to some extent too much for us to work out. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory, from Christ's incarnation to his ascension to his glorification. Great is the mystery of godliness. For us that is wonderful. Because aren't you looking forward to meeting Christ in heaven? To understanding it all better. So we have the mystery of godliness beyond human reason. One of the wonderful things about this mystery of godliness is that as Christians we can simply accept that if God has not chosen to reveal it to us, it's not actually our business to pry into it. It's not our business to attempt to rationalise this doctrine by means of human wisdom alone. We're not meant to do that. We're simply meant to believe it. It's laid out for us in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, and no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Paul warns us not to go beyond or above what is written in the Scriptures. 
He's basically saying, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Attempts to rationalize this doctrine have led to some of the most damning Christological errors, errors that will lead a soul to a lost eternity. In fact, in the early church, in the first 400 years of the church, there are some classical errors, like Ebionism, mostly found among early Jewish Christians, where they removed Christ's true divinity and made him the human Messiah appointed by God, leaving the gap between God and man totally unbridged. Like Doceticism, the opposite to Ebionism, the Docetics believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, and therefore God did not become one of us. And later that became part of Gnosticism. Gnosticism itself, we looked at this in the past and we have studied it together. Gnostics believed some very strange things about Jesus. Usually believed that he was just a man and that the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism and left him before his crucifixion. Then there was Arianism, the belief that Jesus was just a good man who never existed before his incarnation, and whose value to us is that we should simply follow his good example. Arianism is held by much of liberal Christianity today. Apollinarianism, who believed that in Jesus the eternal word, the Logos, took the place of the human soul at the incarnation, denies that God became truly man. Nestorianism taught the separation of the two natures, left his personal unity in doubt. Lots of others. And it was because of all these errors that the church was forced to systematise its teaching on the person of Christ. And it did that at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. At Chalcedon, the church didn't try to rationalise the mystery of godliness, the mystery of the two distinct natures in one person. At Chalcedon, the church stopped us from doing so, and thus falling into grievous error. So their statement on Christ's person includes the following. We then, following the Holy Fathers all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, of the same substance as us, according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, 
and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Now whether you agree with the Virgin Mary being referred to as the Mother of God, the rest of that is a fairly accurate statement on the person of Christ, the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD. So here's a great and important truth. God was manifest in the flesh. God and man. Jesus was a complete human being. He was a man and yet he was God. He was completely divine, even though we can't fully explain that. And we certainly can't ignore it. This is so important for us. Now you may well ask yourself, why has Bob McAvoy spent a whole lesson telling us about something we could never hope to understand? Why doesn't he give us some practical tips for living? Some might say, well I'm just a simple Christian. I don't need to worry about these things, do I? I need you to know today that we must not ignore this important truth, even under the guise of simple belief or childlike faith. It's the easy way out to claim that we don't need to hear sermons or to attend Bible studies on such difficult aspects of theology. But history teaches us that the neglect of doctrine is never neutral. The neglect of doctrine always leads to error, and doctrinal error is deadly for the soul. The fact of Christ's person, his two distinct natures in one person, is so vital that even if we can't fully grasp it, we must nevertheless believe it and rest in it, for it is what the Scriptures teaches us. Turn with me please to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The good news about the nature of Christ is that we have a brother in heaven who knows us and who has taken our humanity into glory. And one day we shall be there with him.